This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Coin Gaming. Stick around for more info about them later in the episode. Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. I just did an episode with Alex Mashinsky, the founder and CEO of the Celsius Network. But what I didn't realize was that the Celsius Network was actually one of the founders and pioneers of distributed finance in our industry and the ability to get interest on your Bitcoin. I think they were like the first ones to do that. What's so cra- Alex's story is, is epic. He was one of the first people that had to convince the MTA to put Wi-Fi and cell phone service in the New York City subway systems. And it was his company that actually did it. He's on the board of directors of Novatel, huge Wi-Fi product company. And actually one has uh, created a company uh, called Arbonet in 1996 that was so cool. It acted as a, an exchange to trade unused long distance minutes. So cool. Now he's in crypto. The story of the day and the stories that we talk about on this show are just going to blow your mind. So I'll talk to you guys in just a minute. Today, I have probably one of the coolest guests just from the research that I've done. I haven't even met him. Alex Mashinsky. Alex, you're the CEO of the Celsius Network. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Charlie. We'll get into like your whole life story, which is uh, intense, um, very cool, uh, filled with stories and, and, and amazing history. But I want to, what I like to do sometimes before I start the show is like, kind of like connect an early childhood story and how you are related to that story. Um, and what's interesting and how that relates to, to Bitcoin and to crypto. What's interesting is that I remember um, having to like go and to convince banks and to convince investors that Bitcoin was this real thing, you know, back in 2011. And what was interesting, I read um, that, you know, one of your companies, Q Wireless, that made up the four companies that made up the joint venture to put in Wi-Fi in all the New York City subway stations. I had read that it took you three years to convince the MTA, the Metropolitan Tra- uh, Transportation Authority, the, you know, the ones that govern the subway in New York, it took you three years to convince them just to put a survey if there's enough demand for cell phone service inside subway systems. And this was like in 2010 or something like that. And I'm reading this, I'm saying to myself, is that a joke? You had, you had three years just to convince them to even just take a survey. Of course we want cell phone service and Wi-Fi in, in, inside the trains. What, what kind of stupidity was that? So can you kind of like take me into that and how that parallels to, you know, where you are today and having to, you know, you're like the adult, you're like the big boy, you know, you're going out there and meeting with uh, politicians, you're meeting with banks, you're meeting with all these um, major companies. Uh, do you have like the same issues convincing them of crypto that you have to do, like, for example, with that? Yeah, it's, a, it's actually uh, both a sad and a happy story because um, my best friend uh, died in September 11th, Hagai Sheffi. And, and, you know, I was kind of thinking about, okay, what can I do for the city? What's, you know, because obviously that was a major disaster and the city was closed for a few weeks. And, and I decided to focus on this issue that the subway did not have any wireless service. And back in uh, 2001, um, uh, the fact, you know, holding a, or having a personal cell phone was not uh, an obvious idea. So when, we, when I went to the MTA and said, hey, we should put wireless in the subway, and this was before Wi-Fi actually existed broadly. Wi-Fi was just an experimental protocol back then. Um, so... Um, so when I went to them, it, it, they looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, what are you talking about? We don't want any signaling there. We don't want to allow terrorists. We just had this big bombing and you want to allow terrorists to have signal in the subway so they can do damage again. 
so it wasn't as easy as uh, okay everybody has a cell phone and they live on it and uh, the way it looks like in 2020 so so we did not run the server until 2004 and uh, it took between two, 2004 and 2007 to actually do an award and and issue the the contract to the to transit wireless which is the company that i helped found um, and then the service didn't go live until 2011. So it took a very long time to put all of this together. So, and every, anything good, uh, takes a long time. So, so back to your question, it is definitely, and you, you know, this better than me, you've been in this longer that, uh, convincing people that decentralization or something that, that is, a uh, like this non-existing digital currency running on the in the cloud on the blockchain uh, is something we need and it's going to replace the dollar is it looks completely fictional and ridiculous so yes it's very hard and it's very challenging but people like me and you are not uh, faced by any challenge so here we are but you were yes that's a good point um that's definitely a good point did you do you think that I, it's a stupid question, but I'm kind of like setting up the stage for the further parts of the conversation. Do you think that, you know, you're involved in um, very early uh, voice over IP work? Um, um, you were involved in, in Wi-Fi in very early. I mean, just, you know, like you were saying, uh, no one was using Wi-Fi. Uh, having cell phones, personal cell phones wasn't a thing. Did you ever look at those like, did you ever look at those... Um, not things, but did you ever look at those uh, products or technology as something that would change the world uh, as, as you kind of look at, at crypto today? Are there same parallels there or is this just another product or were those just other products and this is different? Well, so for me, it's easy. I'm, I'm a very technical guy, right? I have over 50 patents on kind of the underlying technology for voice IP, the, the technology for distributed antenna, what the, which is what we're using in the subway. Um, you know, like a lot of different things, like uh, how, for example, to distribute electrical power across networks. So all these different, if you look at my patents, they all kind of always 10 or 15 years ahead of their time because um, I don't let kind of the reality we live in uh, block me from thinking about well, what is a better, uh, bigger, better system um, that could do better for humanity? So, so when I uh, was working with the phone companies back in the early '90s, and uh, I was like, I actually had a, a voicemail system. I was like the first guy to back in '88. If you wanted a voicemail system, you know those things that say press one, press two. Yeah. And so on. So back then, those were only made by very large uh, proprietary companies like VMX and Octel. Really? You couldn't buy a PC that had a voicemail system. You had to buy like a mainframe computer or a mini computer that ran these things. And it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I said, no, I can build that on a PC. And the people laughed at me and said, uh, you know, you can't do it on a PC. Like it's no one is going to buy it from you. Who's going to buy a PC with a voicemail? You know, those things are not reliable. So, so, um, so we built the first uh, kind of commercially available uh, voicemail system, licensed it to a bunch of um, um, PBX manufacturers, and basically 
you know, even now, sometimes I call a company and the voicemail answers. I'm like, oh, that's my system. You know, I I recognize the voice. So (laughs) so I worked with with the phone companies to deploy these things, right? And and AT&T was one of my customers. And and then I came up with this whole idea that, hey, wait a second. Why are we paying $3 a minute to call Japan or Argentina or, or Germany? It should be like 10 or 20 cents. I mean, these guys have these giant pipes. And why did phone calls cost so much money? Like back in the eighties and nineties, like I, my, my father would tell me stories of he would be traveling, you know, through backpacking through Europe and, uh, you know, as a kid, and then he'd try to, he wouldn't have enough money to, to call home to have his, have my grandparents send him more money. Right. You know, it would be like in, 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 our, in, in dollar terms of our, in, in dollar terms of today, if you were in Paris and you wanted to make a 10-minute phone call to New York City, what would that cost? It would cost you like $30. Or, or $40. Really? That much yes. money? Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it, it, you couldn't use a credit card. You would have to, and I did that. I, I lived in Paris, actually. It's funny that you say Paris because in 88, early 88, I, was, I, I lived in Paris and I would go to a, a pay phone because I was a student there and and I would have like a hundred uh, of these, uh, I think it was five uh, uh, franc coins. And I would just keep popping those coins into the payphone uh, because you couldn't use, uh, you, you, you know, you couldn't use a credit card. You had to use either one of the, the phone cards that the, the, the phone company made. And then you'd hear the clicking, you know, right exactly. before. Exactly. Or, or you had to use coins. I have the f- and it was extremely expensive. I have the fortunate... I had the fortunate um, ability of being able to use a you know a few payphones before they were like phased right. out because I'm still I'm only I'm only 30 years old but I still got that experience. They were still being used as I was a kid. You know, like if I needed something for my parents and I was you know in elementary school that you know and they, they didn't let me call uh, home during recess. I would sneak out, run to the payphone, call my mom or whatever. But that's what so you know that experience of not having a cell phone. Like uh, most kids don't really think about that nowadays, but it's so funny that we're talking about that in the, in the COVID world t- of today. And I want to, if, if you're cool, then I want to ask you a question that I, I wasn't preparing for, but I, I follow your Twitter and I saw you talking about oil. What the hell happened yesterday? Uh, oil prices and the negatives, like you're seeing uh, the ability that, you know, and I, my friend's an oil trader. So he was the first person I texted last night. Um, my friend's an oil trader here in Florida and he, uh, I texted him last night and I said, like, what, what the hell is going on? And he said, yeah, it's freaking nuts. Like the contract uh, is expiring today. He said he has 20 tankers from Saudi Arabia heading to the Gulf Coast uh, here, uh, 40, mer- 40 million barrels yeah. uh, that he's been involved in that trade. Uh, and a lot of it, like they can't even get people to buy it. Yeah. Like that's, that's how crazy is that? They have 40 million barrels of oil heading to Florida and there's no buyers. Yeah. So look, it, it's like a Mexican standoff, you know, between us, Saudi and the Russians. And it's funny because like, if you watch uh, the news in the United States, the U S says, Oh, it's, it's a fight between Russia and Saudi. And if you watch the Russian news network, I speak Russian. So so they say, oh, it's a fight between Saudi and the United States. And I'm sure if you watch the Saudi news, they say it's all about America and the Russians fighting it out. So the, the problem is, is this global bubble that got burst, which was popped by the needle called the coronavirus, has caused the entire planet to stop. And when everything stops, 
uh, demand goes from 100% to zero. It doesn't go down to 70% or 80%, right? So no airplanes are flying, basically barely any cars are driving on the street, right? Industry is shut down. So the demand for oil has collapsed so fast that the three largest producers, which are the United States, Russia, and Saudi, basically had a stare down, right? A Mexican standoff. And, and they had to basically decide, okay, well, what do I do? There's not enough seats. The music just stops. There's not enough seats for all of us. Yeah. And the Saudis were the first one to basically break the circle, right? They pulled out. I guess I thought Saudi Arabia and the U.S. relationship was good at this point. Not that, when, that, you know, that wouldn't happen. Not when it comes to hundreds of billions of dollars worth of money, right? Because this is all about money. This is yeah. basically there's not enough customers who are still buying oil. So the first company or the first country to jump and grab these customers is going to win out. So the Saudis secretly, while not telling anybody else, right, went out and signed a huge deal with China at half the price. Back then, oil, I think, was $50 or $45 or whatever. And they went and did a huge deal at like half the price. That's why oil collapsed to $25 because everybody realized, oh, shit, Saudi just locked up the next year. At how much? Do we know what the price is? dollars right? So, so now, so, okay, so it's the, it's the futures prices that are in the negative, the future, but why would that so exactly. be? So if, then the rest of the industry had to adjust to that. The rest of the industry said, shit, all these contracts that oh exist at 40 dollars $60 are irrelevant because the Saudis, if anything, the Russians haven't even responded yet, and the Americans haven't responded yet. So this thing is going much lower Let's get rid of all the contracts. And when everybody's trying to get rid of all the contracts at the same time, uh, you go to zero. But here you went to negative. Why? Because in, in, in futures or in options, and in oil options, you have to deliver the merchandise. Meaning if you are left with that contract on the day that it closes, you have to take delivery either in Cushing or in one of the other stations where these things are settled. Right? And if you don't take deliveries, you're paying gigantic fines. So it's cheaper to pay a negative rate than to pay the fines that these guys will charge you for not taking delivery of the oil. So, so basically, the guys that got stuck with these contracts were willing to pay negative rates. And this never happened in the history of oil, right? So, so, so this is a history being made in front of us. And that is, uh, you know, you can tell your grandchildren will be telling you, what, really? Yeah. Just like using a payphone. You know, it's like, I'm like, the great quarantine of 2020. <laughs> exactly. So what, what you're seeing in oil, unfortunately, is going to happen in many, many industries because it happened quickly in oil because it's such a liquid industry and, and things move very, very quickly over there. But you're going to see that in the, in the airline transportation. I mean, 80% of all the airplanes in the world are sitting idle. You know, well, who's paying for all of that, right? So, so the U.S. government bailed out the U.S. airlines, but I guarantee you that not everybody in the world is going to bail out every airline out there. So you're going to have a massive amount we look of, at, of bankruptcies we look at, like, and liquidations. We look at these telecommunication firms. We look at uh, airlines, hotel industry. We look at uh, the restaurant industry. We look at all these industries as like essential industries. Uh, hell, even the cannabis industry uh, is, is an essential industry. Uh, the alcohol industry, probably less of now, <laughs> especially compared to the cannabis industry. Um, my point is that 
lot of these industries that I'm naming, you've been a pioneer and have been involved in, especially telecommunications. Um, do, will we ever see the, the cryptocurrency industry be seen as a, an essential industry? Well, look, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and uh, part of the reason I created Celsius Network was because I did not see the crypto industry uh, move in the right direction, right? So, so what I see... How so? Well, what I see is us rebuilding Wall Street. On, in, in crypto, right? Almost every company that was created is a copy of some company on Wall Street or some company in financial in, in the financial industry. And and if you read Satoshi's paper, that's not what he's talking about or she's talking about, right? So so my frustration is that that you can't help seven billion people if you're creating a system that was designed to help the one percent. And, and, and all we've done, if you look at Coinbase and Binance and all these companies that we created, which are our heroes, they're all toll collectors. They're all extracting fees from the community and taking them out as profits in dollars, right? Coinbase, which brags about how they made $2 billion in profits since 2014, well, what, where did that money go? Did that money turned into more purchasing of Bitcoin? No, it went as dividends to their shareholders, right? So, so we're taking money out of the industry, not bringing money into the industry. And you can't grow this industry if you're constantly taking money out. Same thing with uh, BitMEX and other companies, right? They're not uh, buying coins. So, so I decided to create a, a business model that, that is the opposite of that. It's a business model that only focuses on the user, the owner of the coin. And it represents their interest. We're not a neutral party like Coinbase. Coinbase doesn't care who's the buyer and who's the seller. As long as they have a transaction, they get their fee and they walk away from it, right? Celsius' job. So you're. So you're yeah, just to finish, Celsius' job is, is to deliver 80% of the value created to the coin holder, right? Sorry. So you're. That last statement, can you expand on that? Because I had a question and then you said that and now I want to so, hear so let, more about let, what yeah, you mean let, by let that. Let me kind of dive into what Wall Street does because a lot of people... <laughs> That's what I always yes. do. Uh, no, but what Wall Street does is, is very interesting. Like, you know, a lot of people... It's funny, I, I live here on, in the Barbizon uh, Tower here in Manhattan and my neighbor below... I used to live on Wall Street. Yeah. Until until I moved here to Florida, I used to live on uh, right on uh, right above the World Trade Center, actually, right on the in the World Trade Center yeah, site. Grew up it's, there. It, and look, they're, until a few years they're ago. very good at what they do, right? They're ex- exceptional. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, they have exceptional skills at extracting these souls and always landing on their feet, no matter what happens to their clients or what happens to their counterparties or anybody else. So, so let's look at one specific thing that Wall Street does very well. It's called sec lending, securities lending. And, and, and the reason you can go to Fidelity or Charles Schwab and, and um, do a stock trade, buy a stock and not pay any fees, right? used to be, uh, I remember paying Merrill Lynch $300 to do a stock trade. And then it was 100 and then it was 50 And then it was 495 and now it's zero. So you ask yourself, wait a second, they used to charge me $300. How can they do it for free? You know, the reason is, is that they make all their money from not from selling you the stock or managing your portfolio and charging you those little fees, but actually from securities lending. So, for example, let's take Tesla right now, right? The most shorted stock um, in the United States. So when you buy a share of Tesla because you believe Tesla is the future and Fidelity gave it you the transaction for free, 
Fidelity immediately turns around and lends a stock to a short seller, right? And they charge them 20, sometimes even 30% a year. So if you bought $10,000 worth of Tesla stock, Fidelity will make two or $3,000 per year from your stock, even though they gave you the trade for free. And that's called SEC lending. So what Celsius decided to do is to do exactly the same thing, coin lending instead of SEC lending, but give 80% of that income to the coin owner. And that has never been done in history. There's never been an institution or anyone who has ever given the, the asset holder uh, money back, right? I mean, that, that's just crazy. Why, why pay people so much in interest if you can get away with keeping it all to yourself? Fidelity keeps 100% to themselves of the, of the, the returns on this. So, so when we just two years ago came up with this idea that you can buy, you can earn Bitcoin on Bitcoin, you can earn a yield, right? People thought we were a scammer. They were like, oh, there's a thousand other guys. Yes, I remember. Oh, you guys are one of the first to do we it. We were the first. Yes. So, so we, we invented this whole idea that you can earn Bitcoin on Bitcoin or Ethereum on Ethereum. Right. And so on. In the beginning, everybody said, oh, you, you guys are just scammers. You're doing an ICO. So you just need some idea to, to scam money out of people. You'll never build the product. Then we built the product. We, we launched, we did the, the ICO in March of, of 18 and we launched the product in June of 18, three months later. And then people say, well, maybe you can launch the product, but you're not going to scale. I mean, how can you scale? There's not enough demand for the stuff. And then we announced we did several billion dollars in transactions just in 2018. And people are like, oh, they're liars. They're lying. They, you can't do that kind of volume. You know? so, so now we announced $6.2 billion in transactions. And we paid, uh, we are the only guys that announced how much we pay our community. We paid our community $11 million in interest payment. Wow. How many active users? 88,000 active users. From all and over how, much, the world. How, so, how much an interest? So think about what Coinbase does, right? Sitting in the middle and taking a fee and think about what Celsius does. Celsius earned $11 million in interest for the community. And then we went to market, bought Bitcoin, bought Ethereum, bought sell token and distributed it pro rata to our 88,000 users, right? So we do the opposite of what all these other guys do. Because why? Because Look, I'm, I'm already retired. I don't, I don't need to do this. I did this because I want to create a standard by which everybody in this community is measured. So if I'm giving 80%, my competitor, if somebody wants to be better than Celsius, they have to give 90% back to the community. You understand? And, and that's what we need to build. We need to build companies that act in the best interest of the users, and then all the users will show up because you can't get this kind of service from the bank or from your broker dealer, or from, or from your investor advisor. None of them are going to pay you 80% of what they make. Yes. I remember uh, when I was um, a kid, I got a credit card, a few hundred bucks, and I was like 18, and I started spending, and I didn't have much of a job, and I got into debt. Yep. And my dad had to bail me out a few hundred dollars. And... He used it as a lesson to explain to me the credit markets. And I didn't understand the credit markets. I always thought you earn money, you use the money you have in your savings to, I don't know, spend. And that's how the world worked. You earn money somehow and you spent your money. I didn't understand the concept of like leveraging your assets, leveraging your money, credit markets, capital markets, and why it was important to have credit and capital markets in any, in any industry. And 
further, that taught me a lesson of like for, for Bitcoin to succeed. And I knew this lesson. And if you look at some of the, the arguments I had uh, back in 2011 with people on the Bitcoin talk forums, one of the big, we were the first people to offer the ability to not only buy Bitcoin, but to actually sell it. So there was no other way to sell Bitcoin. I don't, no one realizes this, but it was impossible. You buy Bitcoin on an exchange. And the only way to sell it is to find someone else whether on the exchange or privately, to, buy, to, to sell your Bitcoin. There's no retail way to sell right. it instantly to get a price and everything. We were the first to do it. And a lot of people gave, gave me flack. And they said, what are you, stupid? We want everyone to buy Bitcoin. And I said, no, in order for this, to, this economy, this, this rebuilding of this financial infrastructure, I didn't use those terms at the time. I was like 19 years old. I don't even know those terms. Uh, you really need like, you need markets. You need the ability for like uh, people to buy and sell this asset. But what I was really trying to say what is what you're saying, right? You need the ability for people to, to leverage their assets, to save, to hold, to buy, to sell, but not just that, but to also to, to borrow against, to further the industry. And because you did this, you probably have corporate clients, industries, you know, people in our industry today that are borrowing uh, against their assets just to keep their companies afloat to maintain their employees. So you're directly supporting our, our industry because our, you know, our, there's no other way for uh, our uh, industry uh, companies to borrow and to get cash flow when they need it. There's no other way. You know, they can't go to banks. It's hard. But they can go to Celsius and go to other companies that, that do what you do. So it really works out really well. Yeah, so there's two, two parts to it. So yes, you're right that uh, we lend against the asset uh, but 90% of our users actually just come to us and say, I just want to earn interest, right? So they basically say, look, if I put my money in the bank, it earns nothing. And in some cases, they just charge me fees and I earn nothing. So here, uh, we created an interest income product that replaces the banks and the financial institutions. When I, when I came to this country in 1988, uh, Citibank paid you 7% for just depositing your dollars in the bank, Right. So, so now you can't get that, you can't earn that anywhere, right? It's not even an option. So we created, we invented this interest income, which I think is the utility for crypto, right? Besides Bitcoin being an a amazing store value, what if you could also earn yield? What if you could earn yield on stable coins, right? So these are the things, the problem we're solving is something that 7 billion people need. Borrowing against your assets, maybe 10% of the population needs. But earning yield, 100% of the population wants to earn yield on their fiat or on their gold or on their crypto. And that's what Celsius does. That's what Celsius invented that no one has done before. Now, on the borrowing side, Celsius was not the first to lend you against uh, your crypto. So if you remember Salt and BlockFi, those companies existed before Celsius. But remember what they charge you. They charge you 20 to 24% to borrow against your yep. Bitcoin. And when we launched the product, yep. we said, wait, this is an asset-backed loan. If I go to um, uh, Morgan Stanley or I go to Fidelity and I want to borrow against an asset, they'll charge me 4 or 5%. So why is BlockFi charging me 24%? So we launched the product with a 5% annual interest. And again, everybody looked at Celsius and said, oh, you guys are lying. You just just a teaser. People want your coins. They're going to steal them. And this is two years later. Now all of our competitors, Nexo, BlockFi, Salt, all of them are 
in agony are trying to match up our rates, right? So, so again, do you come to this industry just because you want to be a toll collector and extract as much money as possible from the community? Or do you come to this industry to help them, just like you said, and make people's life easier? And, and that, these are the fundamentals of, of doing good and doing well, right? And you have to do well before you do good. Otherwise, why are you here? Why are you in crypto? If you're in crypto just to extract tolls, then please go back to Wall Street. There's no question that crypto and gaming have gone hand in hand since the early days of Bitcoin when it first launched. And in fact, that's what really drove mass adoption. Companies like BitCasino, which is the first ever licensed Bitcoin casino, and brands like Sportsbet.io. I mean, it's the reason people are using crypto and Bitcoin today. Fun, fast, and fair. When you're using uh, blockchain-based gaming, make sure you require that they are fair because there's no reason that they shouldn't be transparent because everything can be seen on the blockchain. Coin gaming is so cool. It's an ecosystem of brands, products, and people that are serious not just about shaking up the gaming industry, but also the crypto industry. These guys have been around since the early days of Bitcoin. The CEO of Coin Gaming used to actually mine for Bitcoin and, and use the Bitcoin miner to heat his home in Estonia. I mean, those go down to like negative 25 degrees. So if you're, if you're cool about driving crypto awareness together, if you got a question or you just want to connect with your team of like dreamers and doers, the whole community, make sure you check them out coingaming.io play some of their games sportsbet.io or big casino fun fast and fair i'm charlie sharm i'll talk to you guys right in a minute one of the uh benefits that wall street had offered was treasury management how are companies managing their money now especially in the covid world but during the bear market world how are industry companies uh, allocating because a lot of them are earning using you to earn interest on their you know, Bitcoin holdings, you have a lot of ICOs that raised a lot of money. Sure. A lot of them lost, you know, 97% of it. A lot of them worked with you guys to help maintain it. A lot of them were like, a lot of them were like just kids who all automatically had $20 million and started spending it, you know, to, to no avail. Um, how should, you know, what's the best way to, to, to manage? Uh, are you helping companies do that? How do you guys do it? Sure. Yeah. Well, look, we, we have hundreds of people that use us for, uh, Treasury management, and and we announced several of them, like the Litecoin Foundation and Chainlink, that have millions of dollars uh, with us. And and uh, the whole point is for you not to have to sell your Bitcoin, not to have to sell your Litecoin or or or, or ETH or whatever you have, right? Because when you can borrow against it, and just like the rich people do, right? Uh, our president borrows against his real estate. That's why he pays almost no taxes. Right? So his real estate increases in value, he defers his tax bill, and he borrows against the asset. It's the same thing here. If you have a great asset that appreciates, it's the asset that appreciated the most in the last decade. Anyone who sold any of their coins to pay for a pizza or to pay for their Uber or to pay for buying something on Amazon is is miserable today, right? Because they all wish they had those coins back. So all we're doing is we're saying to people, look, for less than 5% a year, you can borrow against the asset and you can use those dollars to pay all your bills. And as long as you don't take too much leverage, you'll be fine. Like during this flash crash on March 12, we liquidated less than five customers while our competitors liquidated almost all their customers. So we're not just here uh, saying things. When the test came, when the industry 
tested the hodlers, tested all of the margin guys, tested all the, the speculators. There were people who liquidated all their customers and there were people who acted yeah. in the best interest of their customers. So, so my point is, is that there are ways to do this and act in the best interest of your users. And, and that's how you build this industry. You asked me the question of, okay, how do we scale this? Voice of IP has several billion users. You know, all these industries that we were all involved in over the years have billions of users. How come crypto is stuck at 50 million? What are we doing wrong? And what we're doing wrong is that we're stealing from our customers. We're stealing from our community. So why would they show up here and use us? Why would they trust us? Why would they join us? So, so for me, the, the two fundamental keys to mass adoption are Bitcoin and Ethereum and other uh, key coins have to continue to appreciate. I, I, can, I can help there by bringing more people into the industry. And the second one is adding more utility, which is, for example, interest income or liquidity against the assets, like you mentioned. So you put all these things together and now people may not use them, just like your guys, your old customers didn't really need to sell the coin. They just need to know that they could sell it, right? That they could quickly get out if they needed to, and then they felt comfortable buying the asset in the first place. Um, I wanted to, to switch really quickly and ask you, uh, you, you mentioned asset, um, and that triggered something in my head, asset, ba asset based lending. Like I still don't see it as something that has furthered, uh, as an industry. And I see crypto as a potential, um, groundbreaking, you know, like a potential, um, pioneer in this. Uh, so you look at figure lending and figure lending is offering the ability to do like very simple, like you know, home equity lines of credit, uh, asset based lending. But someone like me, I have a bad credit score. My credit score is like, I don't know, in the 600. No one wants my identity. I'm a, I'm a felon. I have a bad credit score. Um, very public figure, you know? So you go, someone like me, if I have assets and I want to go and borrow against my assets, they're still doing a credit score. And so if I want to even borrow, uh, for example, $10,000 against a $100,000 asset, you know, the risk of the, of the banker for any of these companies is, is so low. And I'm in the lending business as well. Like as a side of non-crypto, I, I do hard money lending here in Florida. Um, and I don't, I never check credit scores ever. Cause what does it matter for me? If I'm lending 500 K on a million dollar property guy defaults, which I never, you know, we've never had that in 13 years. Um, someone defaults, we, we get, it's a great situation. Yeah. We get a great property. Yeah. We double, we all double our money. Why don't we see this? Why don't we see the thing is with asset-backed lending is it's global, right? Why don't we see crypto companies or companies like yourself dive into this and offer like me the ability to borrow crypto against my house? So first, uh, we do uh, exactly what you said in the digital currency side, meaning if you come and borrow against your crypto assets or gold or your stable coins, and uh, we do not do any credit checks, right? It's an instant loan. You don't have to do anything. You just deposit the asset. You do KYC and you immediately get the loan with a predefined LTV, right? So, so it's exactly what you described. And uh, so the question is, why can't we do it in real estate or why can't we do it against your car or other assets? So today we Celsius meaning only lands against digital assets. So we would land against, uh, for example, domain, internet domain. We would land against non-fungible token. We would land against anything that is digital and can be fungible 
across an existing platform like GoDaddy or something else, right? So the problem with real estate is the minute you go into or cars is the minute that there is no digital representation of those assets, right? So I yeah. can't really uh, put a lien against your uh, car or against your house in the digital way that is acceptable by the law, acceptable by the regulators in each country. So, so even though we will do Bitcoin across 200 countries around the world, we would lend you against Bitcoin in 200 countries. Uh, we cannot lend you against your house. And in many cases, it requires a license and all kinds of other things. So, so we just chose to uh, start with what's easy. And, and we will expand that as these things become digitized, right? So the whole idea is that when your car title becomes digital and we can put a lien against it electronically with the DMV, we can lend you 50, 60% against your car, right? Because like you said, I, I don't need to see your car. I don't need to check your credit. I can just seize the car if you didn't pay me back the loan. So, so I, I think that is the opportunity and the rates should be lower. And, and we should be doing it faster and faster. But Celsius' whole idea of a wallet is that you can add these all these assets in the future, right? So we just launched our gold coins. You can now buy gold from Celsius. You can put it in the wallet. It will earn yield. That never happened in 5,000 years of, of human history. You could never earn positive yield on gold, in gold, right? And you can borrow 70, 80% against the asset, right, at a very low rate. So... So this is, you know, in addition to crypto, in addition to stable coins, a third asset class or fourth asset class that we're adding that makes it very, very easy to both own it and to earn on it, which is not possible. You try to do it on Wall Street. You know, if you buy GLD, which is the most popular ETF, they charge you fees instead of earning yield. Now, they earn yield. They have people that short GLD. They earn yield on that, but they're not paying you the 80% of that. So... So I think the, the look, I, again, I'm a rich guy. I'm part of the 1%. I'm not pretending to be the poor guy who's beating the drums and hates all the rich people. I know all the tricks that Wall Street does. And as a rich guy, when I go to Blackstone and I give them millions of dollars to manage for me, I get to keep 80% of the upside. That is the standard deal with rich guys. So why isn't the average Joe getting the same deal? Because that's not the way the world works, I guess, well, right? We just changed the reason not everyone is getting the same deal because if everyone got the same deal, there wouldn't be a deal to be had. But that's, but same thing that, like arbitrage. Look, but that's not true. Like again, if, uh, let, that's so what the world says is true. Let's though. go back to the AT&T example, right? So you asked me at the beginning yeah. of the interview. Well, wait a second. Why, why did AT&T charge three dollars a minute if their cost was only ten cents? Well, then I lost you. You went. You went silent. Yeah, I'm. Set. Can you hear me now? Yeah, much better. So saying, let's go back to the AT&T example, right? When, when, why did AT&T in 1985 charge people $3 a minute when the cost was really $0.10 cents a minute? And if we lowered the cost to $0.50 cents or $0.20, cents, how about zero? Is there still any value in that network? So, so of course there's value. WhatsApp got sold to Facebook for $22 billion and they had zero in revenues. So it wasn't about the revenues, it was about the network, right? It was about the number of participants that they had that created all the value. So, so my point is, is that Wall Street uh, can pay 80% back to the, to the user base and still be profitable. They just don't, because they don't have to do it, they don't do it. So when we are trying to create a new financial system, 
Why don't we start with that? We start with where Wall Street finished, right? And build from there and, and really focus on the users. And then we will have all the users, just like WhatsApp, right? AT&T lost all their long distance customers. Who's using AT&T for long distance? No one, right? So, so, uh, so that is the opportunity, right? What happened in voice over IP, what happened with the taxi companies in Uber, what happened with the New York subway guys where they said, oh, you don't have to give wireless to the users, you know? Their, their ridership went through the roof when they offered wireless because a lot of people didn't use the subway because they were disconnected. You know, you offered connectivity and everybody, everybody lives in the subway because they get free five bars both on their 4G and on their Wi-Fi, right? It's the fastest connection you can get in the city. So, so all these things that sometimes you don't see the unintended consequences, the, the unintended consequences are 10 times bigger than the damage you thought you're going to create by, by, by giving the service for free or at a discount or whatever. So what's next? What's next for the financial infrastructure um, that we have today? You know, we're going through this massive um, epidemic and will we just kind of like turn the world back on? So look, the, the epidemic, if you look at the world from, a, again, an interest rate standpoint, and I, I, you know, I can talk about Corona, but I think there's plenty of other people covering that. So I'm not going to get into the health issues and all that stuff and you know, like there's a hundred opinions on, on CNN and Fox TV every day. So, so I, I just want to focus on the kind of like the, the ripple effect, right? The, the, the aftershock, right? And, and if you look at, at the world economy, since 1970, basically, when the U.S. went off the gold standard, we had one, uh, uh, one wave after another. We had four or five recessions since the 1970s. And during all those recessions, the Fed and other central banks reflated us out of trouble. And Japan was the, the one who basically had the biggest bubble in the 80s and did the most reflating. And that's why the rates went down to zero, negative rates, and they've never recovered. And then Europe did the same thing. And that now the United States with the coronavirus is doing exactly the same thing. So rates are going to be low or zero forever for the rest of our lifetime, meaning None of us will be able to earn any money on our money while the Fed and other central banks are going to continue to print money like crazy, diluting us. You see, what most people don't understand is that when the government reports inflation and says, oh, inflation is only 1% or 2%, they're not talking about the inflation of money. They're talking about the inflation of your internet service or the inflation of milk or, or butter. And, and what really matters is how did your money inflate, meaning how much more money was printed that diluted your purchasing power, right? And the reason Bitcoin is up 9 million percent in a decade is because the dollar lost so much of its value, not because Bitcoin, one Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin, but the dollar lost 99% of its value against the Bitcoin during that period of time. So my point is, is that for the next 20 or 30 years, no one will be able to earn yield. So if you can come up with a product that has yield, that is scalable, that is reliable, billions of people are going to come and join it. So that's why we're focused on So that. what are people going to use for yield? So that's my point. That's why the reason Celsius exists is to create yield and through the yield invite hundreds of millions of people. And because you brought in hundreds of millions of people, the value of the coins will go up. The value of Bitcoin will go up. The value of Ethereum will go up, right? Because 
what is the price of Ethereum? Every minute, Ethereum is being measured by the community. The entire community votes to buy or to sell. And the balance between the buying yeah. and the selling tells you if the price is going up or down. So if you're adding membership to the community, by definition, the price is going to go up because there's going to be more buyers and sellers. If you're not adding membership, then the price is going to go down. So, so what we need, if you, if you created a utility, if we had less volatility and more utility and we added users, some users will come because they want to earn yield and some users will come because they, have, they want doomsday insurance and some users will come because they want store of value. But as you add different utilities, you will have a broader user base. And as you have a broader user base, you will have higher prices. And when you have higher prices, the, the coin itself will stabilize. You want Bitcoin to be stable? Have a billion users. It will be very stable. How do I know that? The dollar was completely unstable in the, in the 18th century, in the 19th century. It actually went bankrupt three times. But now it's the reserve currency of the world. So it went from completely unstable and bankrupt to the reserve currency of the world. The same thing can happen with Bitcoin if we bring a billion people on the platform. If we take, if we take you know, those billion people, right, and, and you, you take away the 1%, and you take away the people that, that earn their money through like technology-related stuff, um, or take away anyone who earns their money not from... Um, a local economy. Um, take away those people. Most of the world still earns their paycheck or their earns their income from like local economies. You know, they work in the store, they work in construction or they work in a service or they own, you know, then you, you move up from there. They own a building. All imagine like local communities, local cities, you know, so you have these local communities. You have the developer who um, invests and says, you know, is in the middle of a construction project right now. So he's got his whole construction crew. But the trickle down is that he's got the various vendors, um, you know, the window company that they're buying windows from. Then you have the stores where they're buying the lumber. And then you have even the food truck that's coming to so, so, the, so the, the, the workers can eat, you know. So you have all the hundreds of hundreds of people are directly and indirectly earning income every day, thousands in these small towns. Should... Should those, uh, you know, so you, you look at the, the ones on the top, the developer, the one who's paying for this investment in the vacation rentals or building the, the movie theater or building, you know, you know what, a strip mall or whatever, they're building a house or whatever it is. Should those people like be pausing right now? Those are the people, you talk about yields, Alex. Those are the people that are, that are earning yields. Those are the people that are using their money to actively earn a yield, not passive income, it's active income, vacation, building a vacation rental, you know, things like that. Should those people continue to seek those yields? Uh, my, I'm one of those people. Should I continue to seek those yields? Should I be pausing? If I have an opportunity to buy a coffee shop right now and that coffee shop is making a ton of money, you know, set, uh, doing takeout delivery right now, uh, should I not buy that coffee shop? Like, should I be pausing? Should the world be pausing their industry, I guess is my question. Look, at every... Every disaster and every uh, recession is also an opportunity. But because recessions are a natural phenomenon. I know the Fed is trying to eliminate recessions as if it's like we can eliminate all ills. Uh, but the reality is that every 10 to 15 years, uh, the economy needs a reset. Why, why does it need a reset? It says it has slow and tired industries that need to be basically cleansed out and replaced by new, fresh, and growing industry. And that's how you create growth. 
Right now, we're trying to create growth mostly through financial engineer. And, and there are people who are good at it, right? They can extract the extra three or 5% out of anything, out of any building, or out of any restaurant, or out of any whatever. But most of us are not, don't have those skills, right? Most of us go do our job and we exchange our time for money. And then when we get that money, we have to obviously pay our bills. We have to, uh, you know, do what we have to do. And usually there's very, very little left. So it, it, the people who are exceptionally good at creating value uh, have a lot left. And the people who are just normal have very little left. And that's why the 99% cannot compete with the 1%. So the question is, if you are that guy, part of the 99%, you're at the bottom of that list, right? Because you just don't earn enough. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. You're just not getting paid fair value for your work, right? Because of the way economy works. A recession is a good thing for you because... When there's a reset and suddenly there's a focus on artificial intelligence or machine learning or blockchain or uh, rebuilding our infrastructure in the United States, which is what we need to focus on, instead of bailing out the cruise companies and the airlines and all kind of old industries that may not be the future, they're the past, then if that doesn't happen because we are bailing out everybody, right, we, the Fed is effectively socializing the losses of the last 10 years with all of us, then you don't get that opportunity. And, and, and the second part of it is that let's say you're a teacher and you're teaching the next generation. Do you think you paid fairly? No, you're not. You're completely undervalued in the United States of America. Why are teachers paid so little? I never understood that. Because we don't value their input, right? Our economy, if you look at the most successful companies in Silicon Valley, half of them are founded and run by foreigners, half of them. So we basically import our talent. We don't create it from our schools. You go to any top university and you look at the class, the graduating class, the majority of those people are immigrant, right? So what does it tell you? We don't need to educate our people. We bring all the best people from overseas. We import them, right? So, so we invested very little in education. We pay very little for education. And, and, and th this is the outcome. So that teacher that, that needs to beg for supplies, that go, on, on, uh, go online and, and do a fund me rounds uh, just to get supplies for their schools, right? The 5% the, 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 the that is left for them to save, right? They save the, the few precious dollars that they have left. Can they earn any yield on that that is greater than the inflation of money that the Fed is generating? And the answer is definitely not. There's nowhere that that person can put their money after fees and earn anything, right? And, and that is the problem that our community has. It's like the, 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 the Wall Street is already extracting 99% of the value. And now they're saying that's not enough. I'm going to go and lower rates. Rates used to be 3 4 5%. I'm going to bring them down to zero because I got to take all that money and bail out all of my failing ventures that I invested in because I need the Fed to reflate everything so my airline or my cruise company or my gambling uh, operation can go back and yeah, pay exactly. their debts, right? And that's what's happening. So what's next? So we can't... So what's next for... But let, let me just finish this. We cannot fix this. This is not like, okay, we're going to get a new politician and he's going to vote on a new uh, whatever and we're going to fix it. No, we have to build a new society. Right. So we we tried the 
communism. We tried socialism. We tried capitalism. Well, how about trying uh, decentralization, where none of these people, none of the 1% are in charge? And again, I'm part of the 1%, but, but I was born in communism in the USSR, and I grew up in socialism. And then I spent 30 years in capitalism become a multimillionaire, right? So, so I seen, I lived these systems, but I started with nothing. And I'm telling you that there is no way that this continues without a social revolution, without us really uh, going haywire and finishing like Germany or finishing like some other country, uh, which doesn't look good, you know, or Russia, right? So, so the point is that the future is in our hands and we have to make that decision now because we're spending... What is the future? We're spending... Like, what's next for Celsius and, you know, in, in terms of creating a new way for our industry to have m- more uh, we, credit market right. access? We, 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 are, we hope that we are the guys carrying the flag for the entire crypto industry because we created a new business model. Our business model did exceptionally well during the flash crash. Unlike DeFi, unlike uh, exchanges, unlike uh, other guys, right? We did great for our community. Find, go online and find somebody who's complaining about Celsius this year, right? Anyone. We paid every week, we paid more interest to more people than anyone else in the crypto industry, right? So if we can just grow this movement, and again, I'm not saying just Celsius, I'm telling everybody else, Copy our model, pay more than Celsius. I invite you to pay more than Celsius because I want to bring people faster and faster, right? If, if there's 10 guys doing what Celsius does, then we will bring the next 100 million people, right? So, so we want the, everybody to adopt the model. We want everyone to put the interest of the depositor, the guy who owns the coins or the asset first. And then we will replace, by definition, if people... Just like people stop using AT&T and used WhatsApp or Skype, people should stop using the banks and the financial institutions and use Celsius or other companies that are acting in their best interest. And only then the, the pendulum will shift from the 1% to the 99%. That is the future. I guess they should say from, from your mouth to God's ears, right? And hopefully we can all be safe and, and healthy throughout this whole thing but you know these shows that we're doing including this one um you know my whole point is to bring light and educate and entertain at the same time so hopefully the listeners and and everyone will listen and realize that we are past that light at the end of the tunnel and a lot of the anxiety that comes from is like fear of the unknown but hopefully the world will come back on and now we have the opportunity for crypto to really, really be a part of the future financial system. And Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. By the way, I want to tell you, another company that you had founded, I used to use, Groundlink. Back in 2012, I used to use five, it. We created the model five years before Uber, right? And, and, yeah, and, you did. Uh, most people don't know it because <laughs> when I went from... Well, the early Uber beta testers were early Groundlink people, myself included. That's how I knew about Uber. I used Groundlink. And then the er- so I was using Uber like one of the first people in New York City. Yes. But uh, that was the crossover. It was a lot of the people, so I don't know if you realize, but you offered, you had offered uh, this thing. There was this thing called Founders Card that I yes. had. It was a, you had offered a discount, and a lot of the early Founders Card people that used Groundlink ended up with the early beta testers for for Uber. So it's kind of funny how 
that worked out. My we, friend we was just uh, didn't have uh, was, again. Uber was a perfect example. You keep being too early. Uh, you keep being too early to things, but at least now with Celsius, you're not early, but you're the lead. Like you're the leader in that, so that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, thank you again for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. This me. is going to be awesome. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offord. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers. And information is power.